Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to, to Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to Mumbrella Cast. I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is our senior media reporter, Zoe Samios. Hello. Deputy editor, Josie Tutty. Hello. And senior agencies reporter, Abigail Dawson. Hello. Plus, coming up later, Tim Burrows will be talking to Marketo's chief growth officer, Jill Rowley, about the Australian marketing dream. I think there's tremendous opportunity because I don't doubt the data that LinkedIn shared. The real life Project Zeus. Now is the time for you to know the meaning of Project Zeus. And the cool new job in town. So I see the trend being the chief growth officer, which happens to be my title. But first, the week's topics. Will the Opera House become Sydney's latest and largest billboard? Survivor and the Bachelor finales prove a hit for 10, but is it enough for the network? Volkswagen mocks the standards imposed on car advertisers. And Google Plus is dead. So this week, a huge promotion for the Everest horse race was beamed onto the sales of the Sydney Opera House ahead of the actual race on Saturday, the 13th of October. Arguably, the controversy around the projection got the Everest horse race far more coverage than it would have gotten if it had taken out a traditional billboard with protests, questions about government intervention, the very fortunate slash unfortunate fact that it actually happened to fall in New South Wales government's responsible gambling awareness week. So in addition to questions about Alan Jones getting involved and his power over New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian, there were questions about what we use the Opera House for, its World Heritage listed status and everything, absolutely everything, in between. So I know that it sparked debates about whether this was a good marketing strategy from the Everest horse race in that it's still taking up column inches, newspaper bulletins, and indeed podcast time. Uh, But others, such as our news editor, Paul Warbank, who's not here right now, would argue that the Everest horse race has really shot itself in the foot and built some really bad will in in the community. So I wanted to talk to the team today about their feelings on the Opera House and whether or not we should be using it in this way and if indeed it is a slippery slope to us seeing ads for Chicken Tonight on the Opera House, as the CEO said recently, Louise Heron. So, Abby, I know you spoke to a number of people in the industry who arguably would be very pro-advertising. It's their job, it's their livelihood, it's their passion. Were they of the school of thought that we should all calm down or were they of the school of thought that actually the Opera House should not be used for the weird and wonderful world of advertising? There definitely was a general consensus that some things just shouldn't be for sale and one of those things being the Sydney Opera House. A lot of people spoke about the fact that if you start to advertise on the Sydney Opera House, what gateway does that open for other landmarks? You know, someone even mentioned Uluru and – and um, the Sydney Harbour Bridge and things like that. So I think most people say that it's just it's a landmark and it's part of the community and we have enough billboards on the side of the roads, enough phones, TVs and, and other ways of advertising that it's just not necessary to advertise on that. But 
you know, for me, I think you have to look at this uh, sort of two ways. You look at the PR side of things and I think, you know, as you mentioned before, like this this has gotten a lot of attention for the Everest horse race um, in TV time, you know, podcast time, newspapers. But I also think you then have to sort of look at what that's saying about the brand and what the brand stands for and certainly for me it doesn't – fill me with a lot of affection towards the brand. I just think that that's a bit dumb and silly um, and uh, fills me with a bit of negativity. But then I also think you have to look at the advertising side, so what the advertisers are thinking and creative agencies are thinking. And again, there is a huge general consensus that like Paul thinks, they really have shot themselves in the foot here. Yeah, it's interesting that so many politicians were getting involved and invested in telling us not to worry about it too much. You know, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, basically said this brings in so much money for the state. It's a huge tourism opportunity. Don't worry about it. Worry about something else. The Premier obviously intervened and allowed it to happen. The New South Wales opposition leader, Luke Foley, basically said everyone needs to calm down and it's not that big of a deal. Anthony Albanese, who's in federal parliament on the Labor side, told us to stop getting so worked up. So it it definitely felt like the politicians were of the school of thought that this doesn't matter that much. And indeed, Tom Steinfort, who is a reporter for Channel 9, sent out what I would argue is a ill-thought-out tweet um, saying that if only people cared as much about homelessness as they seem to care about the Opera House. Now, I I think that's ill-informed, one, because people can care about more than one thing at one time and it's perfectly possible to care about homelessness and to care about the Opera House at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. The other thing that people on Twitter also pointed out was, well, actually gambling is a huge cause of homelessness and poverty and addiction problems and whatnot. So it's not it's not necessarily an elitist argument to not want advertising on the Opera House. And I think that if even creatives, like you said, Abby, are against it, then it's not about being elitist because if anyone's going to, you know, cry out in favour of creativity, it would be the creatives and people in this industry and they mostly seem to be against it. On the topic of everyone within the industry being against it, I thought after a bit of time this week that maybe I should expand myself beyond the media bubble (laughs) for five seconds because my Twitter feeds, my own personal view was all one sort of school of thought. Are you saying we're an echo chamber in here, Zoe? Potentially. (laughs) I know. It's a crazy thought, isn't it? So I was actually catching an Uber earlier this week and I noticed that my my Uber driver was listening to Ben Fordham on 2GB in the afternoon and I thought, okay, 2GB listener might have heard Alan Jones the week prior. And so I said to him, hey, have you heard about this opera house thing? And I really wish I hadn't have asked that question because it was (laughs) he got very, very angry very quickly. Not at me, obviously, but he actually was more upset about the fact that politicians were involved in it at all. He was just saying it's two institutions, one requested to do something on the other. It should just have stayed between them. He also went to say, I love Ben Fordham. So Ben Fordham, if you're listening, you've got a very huge (laughs) fan in Sydney. But he was also separately outraged by the way that Alan Jones had actually treated the whole situation, uh, uh, saying that Louise Heron should be sacked and all of that. He he was very angry about that. But for the most part, it wasn't even about the advertising team at all. It was just why the politicians getting involved in this debate, which you can obviously see why. But from the consumer perspective, it wasn't about 
oh, I'm outraged that there's going to be, you know, an Everest logo on there or the numbers or anything. I'm just outraged that it's gotten this out of hand and the politicians are making it a debate. I think the line from the politicians that, you know, everyone should just calm down is sort of redundant when I actually agree with the point that Alan Jones made is the opera house is for everyone. And if everyone is telling the politicians, we don't agree with this, you know, there were thousands of people protesting the ad when it went up. I think the politicians should at least try to look like they're showing a little more care over what people appear to think. I mean, it is interesting, though, because I think if you look at Vivid as an example, the the light festival in Sydney, and that's one for... uh, couple of four years now or something I'm not entirely sure of how many years and no one ever complains about you know having things projected onto the opera house and that's another point that a lot of um advertising executives made is if it's something to you know represent the olympics or something that's uh, australian and and sort of really reflects what the sydney opera house is all about then it's okay and and creativity on the opera house is okay in that sense but when you're representing something like something that represents gambling I think that it adds a whole new element to it and that's also where the line needs to be drawn as well I think it is that context of the gambling side of things and as we've mentioned in the intro this is all happening within the New South Wales government responsible gambling awareness week which was very ironic Um, it's sort of almost two mixed messages you know is gambling bad or is it fine to project on the sales of the opera house? It's, it's uh, The message is getting a little bit confused here. Yeah, and it becomes difficult as well when so many of our media companies like the television networks are subjected to tighter and tighter rules around gambling advertising and messaging and when they can do it so that children can't see it. So if our TV networks have to buckle to that kind of government intervention and regulation, which is is fine because gambling is a problem for many in the community, then I just think we're granting too many exceptions here. We're granting an exception to project something that relies on gambling and whilst it wasn't the betting odds being directly beamed onto the Opera House, we all know that that's going to be – it's the world's richest turf race. People are going to bet on it. People are going to make money from it. People are going to lose money from it. But we're then also making an exception – for a brand that the politicians think is okay to advertise on the Opera House. So they're pro-gambling or they're pro-Everest in this case because it's going to bring tourism dollars to New South Wales. Well, lots of other things bring tourism dollars to New South Wales. So do they get to project their messaging onto the Opera House? Well, no, they don't. You know, if you're going to pull the jobs card, Chicken Tonight employs a lot of people from New South Wales. So I think it's just so much easier to have a strict rule, no advertising be projected onto the Opera House, and then it's so much easier to enforce. So while I'm not a huge fan of slippery slope arguments, I can't help but feel that we have started a slow slide that people might try and jump in on. So on to television and 10's biggest reality shows, Australian Survivor and The Bachelor, both had their finales recently. Survivor achieved 877,000 Metro viewers, which was its highest ever, and the Honey Badger's shock decision to choose nobody attracted 1.2 million for the final decision. So that was all good news for 10, who have been struggling against a backdrop of not doing well on Sunday nights, frequently being beaten by the ABC. And just 
On nights when they haven't had their tent pole programs, it's been quite evident that they've got some holes in their schedule that they have struggled to fill, which with new big owners in the form of international giant CBS and lots of pressure on them to turn their performance around, hasn't been painting a great picture for them. So it was good to see the network back on track. But Zoe, a a question for you. When 10 does well, it is shows like this, but its other shows, as I mentioned, just haven't been doing that well. Can 10 continue to survive on these reality franchise formats? I'm not 100% sure, to be honest. And there's two kinds of reality formats we're talking about. So there's the constructed ones that the likes of Australian Survivor, Bachelor, Bachelorette. And there's also the studio reality ones like uh, Grant Denyer's Game of Games, which launched this week, Blind Date, which is coming up with Julia Morris on Sunday as well. And we've seen that those kind of reality shows haven't necessarily been performing as well as the constructed reality. But I, I wouldn't say that this problem with 10 is a problem limited to 10. There is definitely a trend amongst consumers between seven and nine as well. They do prefer reality shows. So 10's obviously tried to venture away from just reality into other programming like Street Smart, which didn't really survive beyond the first week on a Sunday night, and also Playing for Keeps, which we've seen has attracted sort of a little bit of an audience, but not huge. So I think the bigger question here is what kind of content do people who are going onto their TV at night actually watch? Part of the problem uh, with Survivor's success is that while it's great, it's done so well, it's a really, really, really expensive production for 10. It's got really slick, incredible production values, but that doesn't come cheap. So they, I mean, they need it to be successful because it's not just a sort of cheap My Kitchen Rules where people are going to each other's houses and cooking dinner for each other. The sets involved, the people involved, the man and woman power involved is is really huge. So congratulations to 10 for succeeding with that one. But look, it, it does look like perhaps this season of The Bachelorette, by contrast, might not do as well as they had hoped. Now, while 10 will certainly and are certainly spinning it to us that they're happy with Ali Ochen's uh, premiere figures for The Bachelorette, which was 631 Metro 1000 viewers. It is the worst ever for any male or female-fronted iteration of the series for Australia. Sophie Monk had 951,000. Now, look, I don't think it's fair to compare anyone to Sophie Monk. I always said who would want to be the Bachelorette after her. She was such a successful stunt cast for 10. But going back even further, Georgia Love was a relative unknown. She beat Ali with 655,000 Metro viewers on debut. Sam Frost had 875,000 on debut. You know, Honey Badger had 940,000, but even his non-famous counterparts all beat Ali, who's on our TV screens in this franchise for the third time. I'll open this up to to anyone because I know that, you know, we all talk about The Bachelorette in the office, so you're all qualified to speak on this. Do we think this is a case of too much Bachelor and Bachelorette? Do we think this was a mistake in casting? Do we think this is blowback from our broken hearts at Nick choosing nobody. What's gone wrong for Channel 10 here? I think the interesting thing with Nick uh, Cummins being the the Bachelor was that it actually diversified the Bachelor audience quite a bit. So I know that there was quite a, a bit more men watching the season, which is something that I think 10 
did really well having him as the bachelor and and definitely showed in the numbers as well and also in the demographics and the gender split there. But I think with Ali, I mean, it was I would argue poor casting. I think you look at you look at social media, you look at what everyone's saying about her her end to Bachelor in Paradise wasn't exactly favorable. Um and I think that they've just chosen someone who isn't very well liked. I'm going to put this on the record. I don't actually watch The Bachelor or The Bachelor. You are fired. <laughs> so I guess from my perspective, just we, we just finished The Bachelor and immediately The Bachelorette has come. I'm aware that that's how they typically do it, but it just feels like we're endlessly going through cycles and cycles and cycles. I mean, Matty J feels like quite recently as well. Oh, he feels like a lifetime ago to me. <laughs> well, to me, it feels like it was all yesterday. Um I just, I just wonder if they should just probably maybe put it on ice for even just a few months. They don't have anything to replace it with if they put it on ice, Josie. It feels, I, I, I'm sensing the desperation (laughs) from them because honestly, what, what else could they put in that slot? I, I don't know. I'm all on Abs's side in that it's a casting thing. I think it has always been close together, but it really, really has become clear to me in the last year just how much that show's success depends on the mm-hmm. person that is going for love in whatever capacity, even if they don't pick anyone. It definitely comes down to the person. Ali was not well-liked when she was on Bachelor in Paradise earlier this year. Twitter didn't love her. There were rumor- nasty rumours circulating about her split with the American guy whose name I Grant. Yep. Thank you, Grant. You know, she it, she wasn't, you know, the all-Australian all girl that everyone wanted. And I also do have to mention a bit of diversity in The Bachelor and Bachelorette has to be addressed. And I actually do or have seen on Twitter and do notice that a lot of people don't like to watch it for that reason. I mean, you look at The Bachelor casting and it's generally blonde white women and uh, white men. Um, and I think that's probably something that 10 need to work on as well and um, promote to potentially get more viewers. And look, Abby, your earlier point about uh, Nick Honey Badger Cummins attracting men came out really strongly in the data and I'll be really interested to watch over the next couple of weeks because that was such a coup for 10, getting men to watch The Bachelor and just would have been so good for the brands advertising on that show, that unexpected boost in audience and a, a more varied demographic watching and I'm not sure that that's going to translate For Ali, I feel like we're giving a bit of a hard time to 10. So, look, I should mention that whilst Ali's 631,000 wasn't ideal, at the same time, Seven's primetime offering of Highway Patrol uh, did only get 491,000 viewers. So, and The Bachelorette did top the 16 to 39 and the 18 to 49 demographics. It was beaten by nines, the block in the 25 to 54s. But it's not all bad news for 10. They are definitely still doing better than uh, old mate Highway Patrol. So as long as it can continue beating that, then I think, you know, they'll be okay. More, More importantly, though, I think we're all glad that nines, a current affair, is on the case and getting to the heart of the true story here. Which Thank is, you, Channel 9. Which is where on earth is the honey badger now? It's also worth bearing in mind that uh, Nine's, in inverted commas, exclusive where they ambushed Nick Honey Badger Cummins in the jungle in Papua New Guinea got 200,000 more viewers than The Bachelorette launch. G'day, Nick. Sorry to do this to you, but can we ask you a few questions about what the mess you've left back home? 
Sorry? So in the creative corner this week, we have an ad from Volkswagen, which is apparently too powerful for TV. Next, we're flying up this epic slope. That looks like more than 45 degrees. And then, bam! And the boulders start rolling towards it. Sorry, these aren't real boulders. No, but they will be on the day. Left and right, it manoeuvres instinctively like a cat. All the way to the top of the summit. So this ad makes fun of the stringent rules placed on car advertisers and what they can and can't show in the highly regulated world of television advertising. We frequently see complaints against car brands upheld by ad standards for flouting the road rules. You know, car ads love to show a car going fast. They love to show people leaning out of windows. I think there was an even an an Apple Music ad a little while back yeah. that got banned when Delta Goodrum was wearing a sort of waist seatbelt instead of the required and regulated one that comes over your shoulder. So they are watched so carefully and it's just the ads have to have to reflect what we should be doing on our roads. This ad uh, by DDB Sydney seems to be taking a bit of a different approach. So, Abby, talk us through why the why the ad has done this and and how they've sort of gotten around the rules i actually think this ad is really brilliant uh, i'll start off by saying i first saw it on tv and uh, regularly reading the ad standards board and regularly seeing the complaints and and rulings against car ads i actually feel a little bit sorry for car brands because i think uh, you know part of selling a car is getting across the power of that car and how that car moves and feels to drive. And it's really, really hard to do that if you can't portray a car going fast or, you know, driving crossroad or doing all these things that sort of in your mind make a car sexy. And I think that they've actually, tongue in cheek, done a really, really good way of showing that. And it's funny, it's produced really well. And they've also sort of had a bit of a laugh at ad standards, I think, also showing that it is a little bit ridiculous. So for those who haven't seen it, it sort of starts out in the very traditional way with a a big, powerful, I think, Amorak Amorak V6 doing all the things that car ads do before they transition to men sort of holding a toy version of the car and showing all the planning stages for the ad and what they'd like to show but what they can't show on TV. And they ultimately say, you know, the ad is too powerful too much for TV. So, so yeah, to your point, basically what they've done is is all the parts of the ad which would be subject to complaints and subject to banning in a TV ad, they've basically used a toy car replica to replicate that. But when you're watching it on TV, it looks like the car's actually doing it, but you can see that they are just moving a toy truck. So it's sort of their way around getting banned by ad standards. I also just like the fact that this is finally a car ad that doesn't take itself too seriously. I feel like we're we're talking about the classic car ad, the car driving fast along the road. And it's something that the um, Tide Super Bowl ad actually took the piss out of. Um, And it's just something that I always think whenever there's a new car ad, it's always basically the same thing. So it's finally an ad that's taken that formula and just sort of taking the piss out of it a bit, which I think is really good, especially for Volkswagen, who have been plagued by a lot of scandals. You know, they had all their emission emission scandals recently. So I think it's actually really good for a brand that has had a lot of bad times to just maybe just try and lighten the mood a little bit. Look, I mean, we love it. But to, to throw back to Zoe's earlier point about whether or not we're existing in a sort of self-loving echo chamber, 
I wonder if consumers who really don't know and or care about the regulations that car ads are subjected to and might not get the in-jokes about ad standards and what is and isn't okay for TV, you know, they, they might not even know that ads get banned. They might not even know that Delta Goodrum has to wear a proper seatbelt and they might not even care. Do you think, Abby, that this will resonate with them, you know, the, the too powerful for TV the jokes about how we can't show you this and and we're doing it with a toy car instead, if you're not aware that there's a restriction or that that's a challenge for car brands, are you going to care? I actually, uh, I think that they will. I, I, you may have heard me talk a lot about strategy and creative and being able to get the right strategy and the right creative and uh, in effect ROI. And I think that this ad actually does this really brilliantly. It does say too powerful for TV on the screen. So you can see that that's where, where they're going with this. And they also sort of talk you through it as well in the ad. So I think that it is creatively quite brilliant and quite interesting even and and it does sorry relay the strategy of being too powerful and I think whether or not you understand ad standards or know about it I think it is quite obvious what they're saying and I think that does come across in their creative. And finally let's take a moment to reflect on the passing of Google Plus. Google's attempt at a social media network was shut down this week after the New York Times revealed a security breach, which the company had known about for six months before informing users. So it seemed like a good time to finally give up the ghost. Now, before we even get into it, I'm going to be completely honest that I just did not ever understand the Google Plus bandwagon, if indeed there was a bandwagon. I never thought it was going to replace Facebook. I never even really understood what it offered. And the one time I had a bit of FOMO and worried that I might be missing out on something, I went on there and about two people I knew were there. So it certainly didn't feel like much was happening. Josie, was there ever any real hope of Google Plus becoming a thing? I mean, Google is so powerful. So you would have thought if anyone can challenge Facebook, it would be them, but it just didn't ever seem to get off the ground. Yeah. So when it launched in 2011, there was a lot of conversation within the industry that this would be the Facebook killer and that even on Mumbrella, you can go and find some old articles where in the comment section, people are having big debates about whether it's going to be Facebook or Google Plus. And I think the consensus actually seemed to be that Google Plus would kill Facebook. Um, but I agree with you when I was using it around that time, I think the only two people who I saw on it were my dad and my piano <laughs> teacher. So it, that's it, a network <laughs> I want to be involved in. <laughs> it's, it, it didn't feel like people were jumping ship and certainly that's not what happened. And I just don't think with a social network, you can confect something like that. It has to happen naturally. And that's what happened with Facebook. That's what had happened with MySpace before. Obviously, that didn't end up to end up too well. But um, yeah, a social network needs to have users come to it almost naturally. And I don't think even the might of Google is enough to to drag people over to a platform that they don't really want to be on. I'm going to take it one step further from you, Viv, and say I actually still don't really know what Google Plus is and didn't until I learnt that it's not going to exist anymore. So I think they definitely had at least a marketing issue there because certainly 2011 probably was the same time that I started getting into Facebook and I just didn't even know that Google Plus existed. And that's a real problem because you definitely knew what Google was. It's not like you had brand blindness there. So it was such an easy opportunity for them to hook you in and it obviously didn't work. Yeah, I, I'm the same as Abs. I, until this week, 
I think I'd heard of it because I think if you have a Gmail account, you automatically had a Google Plus account, never used it. I was definitely, I had MySpace, I had Facebook. I didn't even see it as a contender. And when we're talking about echo chambers, Mumbrella can be arguing if it's Google Plus or Facebook. Your consumer didn't even know Google Plus was existing at the time. I think I had a Yahoo email address as well. I didn't even Mm. have Gmail. So I was completely living in this bubble. I wouldn't have even known if there was a rival. And to be honest, I think I got Facebook in 2009. And at that time it was like, oh, is MySpace going to be killed by Facebook? Like it wasn't even a case of is Google Plus or any other contender there. It was the rise of Facebook and and it did grow really rapidly. So, yeah, definitely a massive marketing miss because I would argue that we're part of the generation that they were probably hoping would be on it. We were the first adopters or the early adopters of social media and we didn't know anything. Josie, do do you think that we let Google off too lightly with this security breach thing? I mean, Facebook very, very rightly copped huge criticism and investigations into its various uses, breaches, misuses of our data. Are we letting Google off too easy or because no one has Google Plus or cares about Google (laughs) Plus, are they right to get away with it? Yeah, so the New York Times revealed that um, around 500,000 Google Plus users were potentially affected in the breach and and the information that was shared was things like names, dates of birth, relationship data, employers, job titles. So quite personal information. Google can't actually confirm which users were affected because they have erased the data for privacy reasons which it seems like a very it just all seems very odd for google which is the holder of all information yes so (laughs) it almost feels like we're just so fatigued with privacy scandals from facebook that when you hear google's got one too you're like oh well of course they do you almost expect it yeah i feel like i'll regret this um you know at some point in the future in the information apocalypse but you're totally right at the moment i'm like oh who cares? You know, know, know my name, know Just my birthday, yeah. whatever. You've got it anyway. But I, you know they're following you around on your phone. So it's sort of like once you've accepted that, I've, uh, I, I mean, this is a terrible thing to think, but I'm like, well, just have it then. I yeah, I mean, honestly, they will, they will play this clip one day to us <laughs> when our lives have been destroyed by our information being leaked. But, but you're right, people, people can only take so much and we so don't properly understand the volume of data that's out there about us and how companies use and abuse it that because we can't see it, because we can't immediately feel it, it's so easy just to be like, all right, Google, you've got my you've got my number. Talk to me later. Don't worry, everyone, because although Google have said they are sunsetting the consumer version, that's their phrase, not mine, they are still thinking <laughs> about potentially doing an enterprise version. So LinkedIn, look out. Ooh. Next, Tim chats to Marketo's Jill Rowley about all things growth. So joining us here now at Mumbrella's B2B Marketing Summit is Jill Rowley, Chief Growth Officer at Marketo. Now, Jill has been described as a sales professional trapped in a marketer's body. Uh, and why that becomes relevant, we'll touch upon very, very soon. Now, Jill is fresh off the stage from a session in which she talked about why marrying marketing and sales is more important than ever, especially when it comes to uh, B2B. Now, there was a British sitcom called Peep Show in which Project Zeus was all about bringing marketing and sales together. Now is the time for you to know the meaning of Project Zeus. The meaning of Project Zeus is 
Why can't marketing be an arm of sales? I, I don't know, Alan. Thousands of reasons, but also kind of none. But won't marketing kick up a shitstorm? Now, in Peep Show, it all ended in disaster. In the real world, in B2B, is, is this an equal partnership or, or, or does sales or marketing, one of those two things, need to have an upper hand, do you think, Jill? I think the upper hand is actually with the customer. And so uh, marketing doesn't have the upper hand, sales doesn't have the upper hand, but the customer does today because our customers are more empowered than ever before. And so the the, the fight shouldn't be who is more important within the business, marketing or sales. The, the, the crusade should be um, making decisions in through the lens of what is best for the customer. And I think if we stop, you know, fighting internally about who's more important um, and we start thinking about how do we collectively and together as a partnership um, deliver better customer value, that, that's where the company wins is when, we, we, when we're really a champion for the customer, not internal fighting over who's, uh, who's got more power or who's more important. And with uh, B2B, it, it, I suppose when you think about a marketer for a more consumer-focused brand, they would argue that their first role is perhaps brand building. Yes. Whereas I suspect if you asked most salespeople in a B2B organisation what they felt the marketer's role should be, it should be delivering leads. What, what do you see as the marketer's primary role when it, in, in the B2B sector? Is it leads? Is it brand building? Because you've got to choose one first. Yeah, it, it's, I think the, the role of marketing in the B2B world is, first and foremost, who is the ideal customer profile, right? Really defining who is the best fit customer for the sales organization to invest time um, to pursue and engage. So marketing... Um, the, 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 the real need in B2B is, is focus on the ideal customer profile, focus on who the buyers are, defining buyer persona attributes and, and, and really mapping out what that typical buyer journey will look like and helping sales, uh, facilitate that buyer journey by focusing on the ideal customer, uh, the right people within the accounts to uh, move along that buying process. So I don't think it's leads because, you know, you could, as a marketer, go to a trade show and scan a bunch of uh, uh, badges and get a bunch of, quote, leads and send them over to sales company, right? So, you know, I do a lot with early stage startups and I work for, you know, a half a billion dollar in revenue company. And so brand building for an early stage startup, the importance of that is different from a half a billion dollar company growing to a billion in, you know, a couple years. Um, so I think, you know, early stage startup, it isn't as much about the brand as getting to product market fit, right? So really nailing that you have developed a product that people are willing to pay for and willing to keep using over time. Um, and then the next real importance in a startup is is go-to-market fit. So can you develop a repeatable process to, uh, to acquire customers that fit this profile? Um, and, and brand becomes increasingly more important as you start to, to, to really accelerate growth. 
So brand is important. The importance of it depends on the stage of the, of the company. And, and whether the company is a commodity product, they're selling something that's established and there's lots of options, versus a, uh, a market creator. Are they creating a new market that nobody's ever heard of? Now, um, a trend I think we're seeing increasingly is the role of chief sales and marketing officer. Um, firstly, do, do you see that as a good trend? And if you do, which which background do you think that person in that role needs? Because they'll either started life in sales or started life in marketing. Yeah. Um, so I see the trend being the chief growth officer, which happens to be my title, um, and it's someone who looks at where does the business grow from a uh, new customer acquisition, uh, existing customers, can we sell more to our existing customers? And even our go-to-market, is that go-to-market going to be uh, direct sales or are we going to invest more in a, a, an ecosystem and a, and, a, and a partner in a channel sale? So what I see the trend is looking at growth as opposed to looking at functions of marketing and sales, but looking more holistically around how does the business want to grow and where are the investments going to be made? Um, there was a second part of the question that I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, and the second part w- 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 was around which background mm. somebody is better suited to if they're going to take that sort of role. You, you came through, came up, came up through sales, for instance. Yeah. So I think... It isn't as much the background of sales or marketing as it is the individual and the lens through which that individual looks at things. So I think if you maybe look at some of the the, the, the traditional sales leaders, not to be ageist, but I kind of put them in the category of the 55-year-old white guy who grew sales a certain way decade after decade and had tremendous success uh, in their in their in their ability to drive sales. But that was in a pre-buyer empowered world and in a, in a, in a different environment of buyers having greater access to information and their peers and other things. So I, 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 the concern is if the sales leader hasn't modernized and adapted to the modern buyer environment. And same holds true with the marketer. If the marketer, you know, thinks of marketing as brand creative PR and leads and not as um, a partner to sales and uh, throughout the customer journey and revenue and growth. So it isn't as much, you know, is it sales or marketing that's better suited to drive this growth? It's the perspective of the individual, and do they think thing? Do they see things through um, the modern lens? And what we're talking about job titles. Something you touched on in your presentation was uh, this: the, the, the role of marketing operations and the sort of, I, I guess, growing career operation there, career opportunity there. Do you? I mean, maybe it might just be worth talking to how you would define that role. It is a massive opportunity. And I have had the joy of seeing it develop over the past uh, 12 plus years. Um, I remember reading the first report on marketing operations by IDC. And it was titled like marketing operations is 
the role evolving fast enough. And it, 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 it struck me as defining the importance of, first and foremost, data. So leveraging data, customer data, um, uh, industry data, uh, leveraging data to, to, to really inform the decisions that you make to be able to drive personalization of campaigns. So, so data being a foundational element of, of B2B marketing. And then thinking about process, right? So thinking about the coordination of um, marketing and sales and having that, that, that carry through of, you know, something is happening in the marketing system, and how do we make sure that the relevant information pops over into the sales system? So that integration of disparate technologies and systems. Um, who else in marketing is poised to really own that, right? To own data and systems and process and, and analytics. And it, it really, there, there wasn't someone in traditional B2B marketing that, that had that skill set really around, you know, technology and, and, and operations. And so, um, I, I, I know with clear confidence that marketing ops is the absolute required wing woman of the modern CMO. Now, uh, something else I'd, I'd like to ask you about, which I saw you posted on LinkedIn a year or two back, making the argument that salespeople should not seek to be thought leaders. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, my umbrella's lucky enough to work with a number of clients and partners. And it feels like sometimes the brief to every one of our salespeople from these clients and partners is we want to be positioned as a thought leader. Um, so that, 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 that's a somewhat different point of view. Why do you think that? It's probably more of a nuance. I, I think thought leader is a stretch for most sales professionals, what isn't a stretch and what should be required is subject matter expertise. Those are different. The subject matter expertise is around your buyer and understanding your customer and understanding the world in which they live and being able to have empathy for the customer, relate to them, connect with them. A thought leader is is taking that knowledge and 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 making a brand around it, and I I think largely uh, salespeople um, are not in the business of big personal brands. It, it doesn't mean that 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 can't be the way. It was my path, so I'm not poo pooing the path. It just you know when you look at the millions of salespeople. Is it real realistic that millions of them can become thought leaders in their respective industries? I think not. Um, but is it required that they are subject matter experts for their buyers in their buyer's world? Absolutely. Now, something else that you and Marketo both talk about is fearless marketers. Uh, when you when you ask for a show of hands. There weren't that many fearless marketers in the room, or certainly not willing pe people willing to put their hands up. Um, why do you think that is? Do, do you think that means that there is an element of fear in being a marketer these days? I was surprised. I thought there would be more hand-raising because 
don't you want to be fearless? Don't you want to be a badass? Um, and I don't know if it's a regional thing or if it was just too early in the morning for people to raise their hand high. Um, maybe what we'll see in the afternoon is more people coming by and saying, I really am fearless, but I just, you know, didn't raise my hand or I don't know. I, I think, I think there are more fearless marketers in this room at this conference than who raised their hands. Now I did wonder as well, the, um, the session immediately before you, and I know that you're in the room for it was from LinkedIn, which right. shared some data and one of those was that sort of self-assessment of Australian marketers compared to marketers in other parts of the world. And, and they tended to mark themselves quite, quite, quite low compared to other countries, uh, including on sort of leaning into and understanding technology. And I, uh, you know, I, I found myself wondering, well, could it just be, you know, a bit of Australian modesty, sort of, you know, scoring themselves a bit down? Um, but certainly your your point of view when you came on stage was that that was a point of view you didn't recognize that marketers are not leaning into technology i when i look at our customers here in australia i see a lot of fearless marketers and it i think there's tremendous opportunity because i don't doubt the data that linkedin shared and so for me, it screams opportunity and it, and it, and it challenges Marketo to say, how can we be part of helping the Australian B2B marketing community get the courage and the knowledge and the skills that they need to embrace what they need to embrace, which is data, technology, process, and systems. If, if they don't get over whatever fear they might have, um, or hesitation around it, they will be left behind because I, it's going up and to the right and the need for bringing and leveraging more systems and data and technology is is only going to increase. And so for me, it screams opportunity. Which is a, a great place to wrap, on, wrap up on potentially with one sort of last, last question, which is um, for people looking to make that first step, next time they're at their desk as a marketer, slightly nervous about skilling up what's your advice on where to begin a practical step i mean self-serving or selfishly whatever it may be marketo offers 68 free online education videos to help marketers get their arms around everything that a b2b marketer needs to understand in today's world and so go to marketo university go to our website and start click play on these videos because that's an easy and free way to start increasing your knowledge and your skills. Jill, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And just before we go, a bit of housekeeping. Thanks for continuing to support the Mumbrella cast. I know we say this every week, but if you haven't had a chance yet, we'd love it if you could rate it or even write a review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. That will help other people find it. Also, just to flag, if you are listening on Friday the 12th, it is the first closing date for the Mumbrella Next Awards. We will, of course, then be extending the deadline for a week until Friday the 19th, but it will cost you more money to enter. So what better motivation is there than a deadline 
and saving some dollars. The next awards will reward the up-and-comers in the industry and those who have been with us for less than 10 years. So within Mumbrella's lifespan, you will be judged by numerous hard hitters in the industry who've made a huge impact over the past 10 years and it's well worth getting your face and resume in front of those people so please do get your entries in and contact us if you have any questions but for now that's it so thank you everyone for joining me thanks Thanks,